Today, we are discussing the formula. Is there a secret? Is there a secret formula for why you like some comics better than others? Is there a secret formula why certain issues stand out and separate themselves from the rest of the pack? Which of your comics have used the secret, the formula? We're going to cover the secret, the secret formula today in depth, and we are going to discuss a phrase that, that, that started with a chant called give Jack his artwork back. Artwork is all over uh, the news, the media. People still can't stop talking about this. New accusations are coming out. Is is some of the art that you're seeing, is it stolen? Um, um, we, we, we go all the way back, dialing it back to the campaign to give Jack Kirby his artwork back. Give Jack his artwork back. Fantastic show we have in store for you today, starting right now. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to yet another edition of Observations. Today's Observations is jam-packed. We are uh, going to get right into the formula, the secret. Is there a formula? Is there a secret? I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, went to my buddy's house, comic creator, prominent comic creator. Uh, uh, just not, not just a matter of days ago. And I said, you think there's a formula? Do you think there's a formula? And I'm I'm not just talking a, a, a formula for comic books, but but a formula for for movies, television, and beyond. I mean, so often now, when one thing is successful, it begats another. Uh, case in point, what am I talking about? So, Yellow Jackets is a, is a show. I'm not going to dwell on it too long. I'm just going to reference it as something kind of happening in the here and the now. Yellow Jackets is a show that became very, um, wait for it, don't be too cringed by this, buzzy, buzzworthy. Uh, on Showtime, has Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis, uh, two, two real hallmarks of the 90s uh, in, in terms of, you know, you you, you remember them uh, in, in all of their prominent roles in the 90s. They're extremely talented and they just prove all their staying power in this uh, show Yellow Jackets because they are the older versions of uh, younger soccer uh, 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 a girl's soccer team crashes in the Canadian forest and the premise of the show and it's it's very upfront in the first episode is that they were lost for 18 months until they were found but there's some really creepy stuff probably the best four minutes of any show I've ever seen uh it the, the finale was on last week and it wrapped it up and people are very energized it had a great ending that is going to launch it beautifully into a season two but the opening and the premise is not too far off of lost people are calling it a lost type show because it works in flashbacks uh around survivors of a really uh uh, tragic plane crash and yes people die and 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 you're guessing who quite survived in the present because they have been very stingy in showing us the survivors and there are a lot of people who um you know immediately came out of this wreckage in in the forest this 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 downed flight with this girl soccer team but we have we've only seen a fraction of the girls in the flashback and there is some really 
creepy stuff that they show you in the first episode that that, that makes you immediately go, how'd they get there? But it has been compared uh, to Lost for all the obvious reasons because things get a little bit supernatural in the uh, in in the middle of the season, and also uh, that that there is you know, and they reference it because there's the uh, when I was growing up in the '70s, there was a soccer team that went down. Uh, I think it was in the Alps, the Andes, uh, and and they had to eat each other in order to survive until they got rescued. They would eat the dead. They didn't kill each other, but when one of them did in fact die, um, they you know figured out that 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 eating the meat of their former teammates was a way that would sustain them through the cruel winter to come. The movie I believe is called Alive, but it is based on the true story of this soccer team and. And again, you know, they 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 were um, hung with this whole cannibalistic uh, moniker uh, about them, and so so part of that is thrown onto this Yellow Jacket show. But um, there there's some there's some formula. Sometimes we like formula. Sometimes we like the stuff that we expect to happen to happen because it assures us that that maybe uh, the road is 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 uh, is safe to travel, or that this is. Uh, that we're on solid ground, and and then that allows them to maybe do some twists, turns, surprise us along the way. But we like formulas. We always have. We as a culture, we show up for formulas. Um, after M Night Shyamalan did his huge six sense twist in the summer of 1999, he became the guy you relied to have a twist in every one of his movies. And this summer, with Old, which I really enjoyed, he returned to a twist formula you the whole movie you're like what's the twist what's the twist there's got to be a twist and i mean i think they i think they even marketed it with and then and, and you'll never see the twist coming okay well then that makes me want to see the twist even more for the scream movie the new one that just is out in theaters right now i haven't seen it yet i, I i've avoided all spoilers whatsoever but they are definitely teasing you with like some twisty ideas and my mind wanders and i i having not even seen the movie, but just watching the trailer, I have my guesses as to what I'm going to see. Again, formulas are fun. They're fun, especially when they, the creators of the content, know that you are expecting a formula. They can then use that formula against you. Well, what does this have to do with comic books? Well, check this out. I'm going to go take you all the way back to 1989. We're going to revisit two past stories today to get you through some very, uh, I think, topical situations, topical um, elements that, that I think we're going to have fun discussing. In 1989, I have talked extensively, and I'll talk some more about it today. I shared a studio with one Jim Valentino. Jim had made a big splash in the independent market. He had a uh, runaway hit with a book called Normal Man, which turned the Superman mythos on its ear. What if uh, a guy with absolutely no powers whatsoever was rocketed and landed on a planet where every single person had some sort of superpower or you know supernatural power and it he used that structure to you know spoof everything he spoofed Stan and Jack he spoofed the Silver Age of DC he spoofed ElfQuest he spoofed you know um all the different independent comics at the time Jim had a had such a good time he, w- he was having a romp. People really dug it. He then uh, uh, went and, and did another a fantasy. He had adapted a popular fantasy 
novel. He did it, it was being adapted by different talents, but he was the uh, artist on something called Myth Adventures. And around that time, he wanted to scratch his more serious superhero side, and he had really fought hard to shift the uh, view of him as this parody guy, funny comics guy, and get taken seriously as a as a superhero guy because Jim loved superheroes. And I had met him as he was trying to make this transition. Uh, we hit it off um, and just struck up a wonderful friendship that I truly cherish. And uh, the memories of that time together, uh, they're, they're just magic. We um, saw so many things. We were, we were at a at a real turn, at a real turn in the comics industry when the old guard was changing and the new guard was coming in and we were able to be part of that new guard. And even Jim, he was very aware that he was an older guy. He was as old, if not older, than some of that old guard that was being turned over in regards to like, they've been here a while. Their work is uh, in need of a, a bit of a refresher. Uh, and, 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 and yet he was new. So he was as old as the guy's who were kind of wearing down, but he hadn't done superhero comics, so he could be a brand new voice. And he was. Everything, as you know, worked out spectacularly for Jim. But prior to me definitely signing on to the New Mutants and Jim definitely signing on to Guardians of the Galaxy, we had some ground to cover. I was doing my annuals for Marvel. Uh, It's so funny because I just got my comp copy from Marvel Comics of Atlantis Attacks a couple years ago, not a couple, maybe five years ago. They did um, an omnibus of Atlantis Attacks, which I was really excited because I had done two annuals that year. I did the Amazing Spider-Man Atlantis Attack tie-in annual, and I did the New Mutants Atlantis Attack tie-in annual. And Atlantis Attack was a summer event in the summer of 1989 where the Atuma, it's Atuma, but he, uh, Atuma, A-T-T-U-M-A, one of the greatest Fantastic Four villains, specifically uh, created as a as an adversary for Prince Namor, the Submariner. Uh, Atuma was an uh, undersea warlord who wanted to uh, attack the surface world. And so all of the different Submariner characters, all of the Atlanteans uh, played different roles. You know, Atlantean witches, uh, evil, you know, princesses baronesses but 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 they all united to cause trouble for the marvel you know earth heroes avengers fantastic four x-men x-factor the new mutants spider-man and uh and i was fortunate that i got to do two uh annuals so i i i, I contributed you know nearly 30, 60 pages to this summer event i, I think I, I may have been one of the only guys maybe the only guy to do two chapters in this thing it was fun because uh i had accepted the idea that i'd be doing the new mutants but it wasn't there yet it's the thing that we had talked about and i've shared with you many times i had been offered x-factor and i turned it down i said i i I can't follow walt simonson on x-factor that that's suicide well they said well we need to give this artist on new mutants some time to transition and believe me they did because I wasn't able to get near the New Mutants book for six or six to seven months after initially being offered it, knowing that they were going to let this artist uh, finish up his run, and then I'd step in. But that gave me a lot of time to consider exactly what I was doing, and in our studio in Garden Grove that Jim and I got, and man, it was such a killer studio. It was a giant shared space. Jim took the front of the space and then I took the the back and uh 
it, it was separated by just the tiniest little it wasn't it wouldn't even qualify as a as a walkway uh certainly not a hallway but um there was a middle kind of restroom uh, not not restroom a room uh, like a den a room where you would rest there was a couch and beanbag uh in, in a in a it was a room inside our office that had a separate door uh and we would just take times chilling if if we needed to but uh we we both had rotary phones and you know we would try not to talk too loud if both of us were on the phone at the same time um but jim was really uh pursuing this in a big way and he had been given a long uh, list of what if comics that he could do because they were relaunching what if and Jim was really imaginative and had some great uh, uh, what if propositions some some great parallel alternate uh, solutions to, to certain stories and they were buying them up left and right and so Jim was doing a couple what ifs which were double-sized comics and I'm doing my annuals and so much of this was the spring and the summer of 89, and it was just a blast to come into work every day. The place that we, Garden Grove, the reason we chose Garden Grove was it was about five minutes from Jim's house. Jim, at that point, married, had two uh, sons with Diane Valentino, and then she had three other kids from another marriage. So there was five uh, children total, plus Jim and Diane, and it was uh, it was it was a blast. I I, I just it, th- those are some of the funnest memories. Breaking in, uh, being being the new talent, um, teaming up with a, another guy who had experience in indie comics, but really was trying to make his way in regards to DC and Marvel. I had done Hawk and Dove, and I was doing these annuals. And then in the middle of all this, Jim and I teamed up because he was doing so many what ifs, and we proposed a what if story called "What If Wolverine Had Been an Agent of Shield." And um, many of got you guys have had me sign that over and over and over. It is one of the most popular works that I ever did because my love for Wolverine comes out all over the place. And Jim and I jammed in terms of plotting and creating that storyline. And uh, and then uh, Jim provided uh, layouts, which was great because Jim is a master storyteller and taught me so many tricks uh, and so many fresh approaches. And it it, it was just such an, a, a blast to produce that particular comic together. Um, I brought in, once the layouts were established after we beat, did the story beats, I mean, I was able to bring in pages every day. In the meantime, Jim was drawing his own what-if story, waiting to see if he would get a regular assignment. What he wanted, what anybody wants in this business, is a regular assignment. And Jim was pursuing getting regular work as both the writer and the artist, um, which would have given him a great, tremendous payday. And it turned out, again, it did, because as you know, Jim is part of the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, re- revamp, which that book had never been particularly popular, but Jim had a great take that launched it out of the gate, um, and 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 he was ruthlessly competitive in keeping that book um, uh, 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 relevant as far as the charts and, and selling extremely well. But prior to all of that. While we were doing this What If Wolverine, which was such a blast to do and featured Wolverine in all different manners of stages, we open with that epic battle with the Hulk and Wendigo and then Nick Fury shows up and he's discussed with, you know, the Canadian government about it, obtaining Wolverine services for S.H.I.E.L.D. in the same way that Professor Xavier lobbied with the Canadian government and the Weapon X people. This time it's, at, you know, Nick Fury and so you got Wolverine, you got Black Widow, you got... 
You got Baron Strucker. You got Hydra. It was such a blast. And Marvel saw how really well we worked together. And uh, and and so one of the editors had mentioned to us that Marvel was looking to do a team book utilizing their teen characters and trying to create a, uh, a they called a Young Avengers. The working moniker was Young Avengers. So we immediately, because I had grown up having such a love for the Avengers, being like my default number two book behind the X-Men, and Jim exactly the same. I mean, his love for the Avengers was intense. He, uh, We both approached it with, with, I'll use the word gusto. We had gusto, baby. And we got together and we beat this thing out. And we uh, really, I mean, whether we were in the open area, Jim's uh, open area, or whether we were with uh, in my end of the studio, or we would go into the kind of the 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 jam, you know, the 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 den room and just and just jam it out by just sitting there and talking ideas back and forth. There was also a we had access to the roof of this two story uh, office building, and we would go up on the roof where the, it was a little windier, and we'd just sit in our. Uh, you know, folding chairs or beach chairs and just chill out. And I mean, it was just, it was a magic time of my life. I have just the best memories of this period. And so we typed up and submitted a formal document. I did a number of different character sketches to submit. And uh, the funny thing about this is I really only, I really believe that it was just Jim and myself who, who, and the editors who we were working with to form and, and shape this. Uh, I, I really figured that, that, that like the stuff, like when it didn't go through, I figured it just kind of died. And the reason it didn't go through is because they said that, uh, that, that, that they were looking at, at other teams, but more importantly, I was told specifically by Mark Grunwald, who was an executive uh, editor and who was the man who hired me on the spot at the very first Oakland uh, WonderCon show in in 1987. So you guys, you guys got to realize. I mean, I am uh, Mark has was a very respected figure in the comic book world. Uh, really carried with him a ton of respect with his position as an editor and a talent because he had been writing since I was a fan. He wrote Project Pegasus in Marvel Two and One. He 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 wrote the Serpent Crown Affair. Um, he and his writing partner, Ralph Macchio, yes, just like the actor Ralph Macchio, exact same pronunci- pronunciation of his name and uh, a pronoun- yeah, pronouncing, pronunciation, what am I doing? Uh, and, and spelling. And uh, they wrote a couple of years worth of Marvel 2 and 1 where that book became my like third favorite Marvel comic. It wasn't jumping ahead of X-Men or the Avengers, but it had John Byrne, it had Terry, uh, uh, it had John Byrne and George Perez switching off on art assignments. Um, so, I mean, I was like always completely engaged. I've done a, a podcast where I cover Project Pegasus and all these Marvel two in one, uh, uh, projects. And, and again, it, it, it's about the, uh, I think, I think it's one of my earliest episodes. It's called the rivalry that fueled an era. And it's, it's about how at one point, I mean, John Byrne does the first three chapters of this Project Pegasus epic that uh, Machio and Grunewald wrote. And then George Perez comes in and does the back three. So literally the two guys that really defined an era and were just peaking all over the place between their Fantastic Four work, their Avengers work, their X-Men work, they jammed together, producing three chapters each, opening and closing sections of this epic 
again to my generation, I mean, it's it's just those two artists alone were 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 the reason to buy the ticket. I mean, they, they were the reason you took the ride. But the stories were really good. But Mark had been an editor for his entire like that entire period while he was writing as well, and he hired me. I mean, he he was the guy that was hiring new talent. So I listened to him when he called me. And he said, hey, Rob, I understand you're really pursuing this Young Avengers project with Jim Valentino. And we all respect the work you guys have put into it. And it's a great proposal. Um, but as I understand it, this is word for word. I, I am right now, I am leaning towards the left of my drawing table in the afternoon that I received this call. Uh, and, 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 and the serious tone that Mark suddenly took on. When he said, as I understand it, you have an offer to take over the new mutants. And while I know that hasn't happened yet, I, I have been assured that is going to happen. And uh, so you have, you know, a bird in the hand and you don't want to risk it for two in the bush. And it is the, the most serious time anyone has ever given me. I'd heard that my whole life, a bird in hand, you know. Two in the bush, the entire analogy. But he was like, you've got your next assignment. You've got your big job. And the understanding was it would be very bad if you were not to do that and to go this route instead because it was almost like, you know, you've given your word that you're going to do the New Mutants. And at that point, all I had was Marvel's word that they were going to give it to me. They had certainly filled up my my schedule with work and I mean from the amazing Spider-Man annual to the new mutants annual to this what if job um, you know Marvel was good on their word you know supplying me as a freelancer plenty of work to pay my bills and to, and, and, and to kind of build my career but I mean it had now been about a year since Hawk and Dove and I've talked about it uh, there's an, a dedicated Art Adams podcast and it talks about uh, building your career and how you need a body of work to do it and the body of work that got me to where I was was Hawk and Dove. But now I'm doing scattershot jobs. And of course, I've, you know, talked about how Todd McFarlane called me up and said, What, what, what are you doing? What, what, why, are you, why are you jumping from book to book to book? You're a jackrabbit. I've always said, he said, like a jackrabbit. He was saying jackrabbit. But the way it sounded was, You're a jackrabbit. A jackrabbit. And he didn't pause. It wasn't jackrabbit. It was jackrabbit. So I've covered this in that in that uh, in that podcast, but I still hear it today. And he's like, "Being on a book, I'm doing five consecutive issues. Got you named as one of the hot guys, and now you're a Jack Robert, and they don't know where to find you. Where are you here? Are you here? Are you here? Don't be a Jack Robert. You gotta put down stakes and and stay in one place so they can find you." And I was like, man, great advice. So I was eager to do it. That's why I was pursuing this Young Avengers thing with Jim. And, uh, well, if I've told this story before on the podcast, I haven't gone to this aspect of it. Because, look, I heeded Mark's words that day. He was he was giving me wisdom. And let's be honest, uh, as I've said, I was it, was, it was advice that absolutely, uh, absolutely turned my career around. If I don't listen to him and do the New Mutants, Cable and Deadpool and Domino and Shatterstar and I don't get that chance to shine and I don't get a chance to take an audience that wanted a book to be so much better and show them how much better it could be 
So I really, really benefited from listening to uh, to my good buddy, Mark Grunewald, who you know would end up dying in 1996, passing far too soon. But in 1989, gave me some of the, if not the, the best advice I'd ever been given. But that doesn't mean that the Young Avengers didn't gnaw at me. And I'm going to tell you why it gnawed at me, because it was so good. We had really done our homework. Now, I have obtained Tom Brevoort, no less, executive editor. You know him from uh, Avengers, Fantastic Four, all the, you know, big Marvel titles over the last 20 years. He did a blog having, when I said I thought like, it had been lost to the sands of time and only me and Jim and the editor that we were working with at the time would know where this stuff was. He did a whole blog in 2011. That blog is gone. If you hit the links to, 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 to the articles. So if you Google Young Avengers, Liefeld or Valentino, you're going to get about five different um, articles that come up and they all link to the reason it became a news story is because Tom wrote about it on his Marvel blog. And then... I went on my website, my dedicated robliefeldcreations.com, and I wrote about it. I gave that. I gave kind of the the my side and Valentino's side and rounded it out because it's like it. But by 2011, I mean, look at it. This this, I mean, this thing is this. It's 22 years in the past, and most people didn't even know it existed. So when Tom printed and he literally scanned Jim Valentino's, you know, word processor, his, his typed out pages. The Young Avengers, a series proposal by Jim Valentino and Rob Liefeld, April 1989. And it says on this first page, The Young Avengers, Namorita, Vance Astro, Firestar, Speedball, and Torpedo are formed by Captain America. His idea is to have his former partner, Rick Jones, lead and train the group of adolescents to become the Avengers of the future. This series will introduce no less than 15 new, predominantly young characters into the Marvel Universe in its first year alone and is designed to be a fast-paced, high-impact team in the tradition of the early Marvel comics. The youngsters will, however, be children of the 90s and a special emphasis will be placed on the fashion, foibles, triumphs, and insecurities associated with adolescence. What? I mean, what a great opener, right? Well, it doesn't end there. We then go, we gave a beat-for-beat layout uh, for, for every issue. And, uh, I mean, it, th- this thing is just a blast. Um, it says, young, you know, Young Avengers number one. Seeing the need to train the next generation of already emerging superhumans to be heroes and future Avengers, Captain America gathers Namorita, Vance Astro, Firestar, Speedball, and Torpedo, and entrusted training these Young Avengers to his friend Rick Jones. Young Avengers 2 through 4. A repowered Nova joins the team as did a newly emerged superhuman, Brahma. They also encounter the Savage Cougar, who declines to join them. Okay, we're going to come back to this. Young Avengers number five. The Young Avengers battle the space criminals known as Force. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Agent Henry Peter Gyrich has taken an interest in the team and berated Captain America for endangering minors. Youngblood six. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Youngblood. Young Avengers six. Despite Torpedo quitting in a fit of peak mid-battle, the rest of the Young Avengers finally learn to fight as a team and drive force back into space. Force all in caps. However, in Washington, D.C., Gyrich instructs the Freedom Force to round up the Young Avengers. It goes on. It outlines Young Avengers number seven um, as they battle Freedom Force. Young Avengers number eight as they battle a, car- uh, a villain that Jim and I really like called the Griffin. 
Then the Magia, which was Marvel's version of the Mafia. We didn't make that up. The Magia had been around since the 70s. Um, uh, 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 are being wiped out by a young super vigilante assassin. And uh, he is the heir to Count Nefaria. And it is our way to introduce new Nefaria, who is battles them in Young Avengers 10. It's I'm, I'm skipping through all of the lengthy paragraphs. If you were to look this up on the internet, again, you're going to have to take pieces from each of the five articles that you're going to come up in your Google search. But you'll get links because they're all writing about one of them is in even 2020. A couple of them are in 2016. It's like we they link to a blog where Tom Brevoort from Marvel Comics, executive editor, first put all this information, my sketches and 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 all this stuff that I'm reading to you from Valentino. But that blog is gone. It's been erased. It, you get a 404. It's it's gone from Marvel. It's disappeared. It's that file that file that you are looking for is not here. But different sites had collected different pages. One of them, I literally got one of Jim's, the, the opening paragraph from one site and then that breakdown of the 10 issues from another site. But so, so thank God they were taking screenshots and, and, and they were downloading and saving the information and sharing it later. But the key is right here in Young Avengers, because Jim sat me down and says, so in issue four, we have to introduce a guest star and we have to put in a new character. And I go, why issue four? And he goes, it's the formula. It's the formula. And I can remember this like it was yesterday. Jim was sitting. The one thing that Jim and I could both do is we can we can sit. I still can. Yoga squat style with our you know legs crossed over each other. Heel on knee, heel on knee. So uh, this is when Jim goes, it's the formula. And he goes, every issue four is a guest appearance or the introduction of a new character. And sometimes that new character is an old character being reintroduced. And he goes, like Avengers 4. In Avengers 4, it's a formula. That's where it starts. The Avengers discover Captain America. And sure enough, if, if you guys you know are aware, I mean, this is going back deep early 60s, but in Avengers 4 is when Stan Lee decided that he would reintroduce Captain America to a to a modern audience, the character created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, and he would do it with Jack Kirby, who was drawing the Avengers. So this is a way to modernize Captain America, put Captain America back in in the forefront. And they found Captain America in an ice cube. It involved Submariner and people worshiping Cap in the ice and thinking he was a deity, and then him throwing it into the ocean while the Avengers were in a submarine and. A lot of kind of little happenstance and coincidence. But anyway, when Cap thaws out, he doesn't know where he is. So he immediately instinctively goes into battling the Avengers. And so they have to have a, they have a little scuffle and they calm him down. And then by the end, he's part of the team. Avengers 4. Cap is rushing at you. He is the biggest part of the, of the cover. It is a classic. It is an epic. And uh, it really set the standard for like the reboot. The modern reboot. And... Uh, and and so so Jim is evoking that, and then I I go, oh my gosh, is this why in Titans Four, New Titans Four, which came out in 1980, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, it is a riveting cover. You see, it's a down shot, and you see the backs of all the new Teen Titans they've 
introduced Kid. It's it's Kid Flash and Wonder Girl and Robin, and Changeling slash Beast Boy with Cyborg and Starfire and Raven, the new Titans facing. They're facing, and 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 it's against a white background, a, a, a high angle shot, and you see Hawkman and Batman and Zatanna and Green Lantern. And, and they're facing off against the Titans. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's the Justice League. The Justice League is going to battle the Titans. And he goes, yep, that's it. That's it. That's the guest star. Issue four, something old, you know, in, is is encountered. Uh, our, 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 our team encounters uh, an existing or uh, an older property character. And so it's like, yeah, because the, the Titans, this new Titans team that's only been together three issues is now going to measure itself in an all-out battle with the full force of the Justice League. And it was great. Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, Hawkman. I I, uh, I forget who else is on the team. The Atom, maybe. But that cover is just burned into my mind. Hawkman alone, just with his wings and, and Batman fists up. And you're like, oh my gosh, these are the adult badass you know, most respected super team in the DC universe. And they're going to now put the Titans through their paces. And they did. The cover delivered. That's what happens in that issue. That is, wow. And 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 so now I'm going, ah, it's the Avengers. It's the old character introduced as new. It introduced in in, in a new fashion in in that that character is, is functioning as the guest star, the special feature of the issue. Well, our young Avengers proposal... Uh, Nova is our guest star, a a young superhero that we didn't have on the regular roster. Now, how we came up with that roster, by the way, how we came up with those exact characters was because we were just grabbing what was bumping around at the time. I had just done the New Mutants Atlantis Attacks annual with Namorita and introduced a new super team that she had called Surf. But I loved Namorita. I, I, I fell in love with drawing her. I loved the ponytail. I loved the bubbles. Uh, because so much of all the scenes I did with her, she's submerged in in water. So seeing the water whip the hair around, whether it's the bangs, the ponytail, the shells that are hanging from her ears, I just, I loved her. I loved her look. I loved how strong she was, that she could punch a guy through a mountain. I mean, she had the strength of, of her cousin, Prince Namor, and, 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 and a little bit of a hot temper too. So I, she was right up my alley. I thought we could do so much with her. Um, you know, Speedball was a Ditko character that I think was just winding down or just uh, they had just decided to uh, launch it or it had just launched. So so we were like, we were co-opting that because it's a Steve Ditko character and we kind of got our Spider-Man vibe, our weird kind of Speedball was like mystical and weird and young like Spider-Man. A little bit of visual combo of everything Ditko thrived at between the Doctor Strange realm and, and, and Spider-Man. And then, of course, you know, you've got Vance Astro, who we all know started as a young person here in, in, in whatever present-day Marvel before he goes off and becomes a future warrior alongside uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy, which was established, you know, in the 70s, 1970s, when they were first, um, when they first appeared. And so Firestar was a character created for a cartoon show, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And everybody always loved how she looks. She, currently, she's part of a vote to get into the X-Men on an online Marvel you know, poll that they're running, which is this thing they do now once a year. They take more of the obscure or less 
secured characters, mutant characters, and, 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 and ask you to vote in terms of getting them onto one of the prominent X-Men teams in one of the prominent X-Men books. But Firestar had been in the early 80s a member of this. Uh, she was fired, Iceman's Ice, and Spider-Man, and it was Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And it was a fun show. It was on for a couple seasons. Marvel did a tie-in comic book with it, but they had spun Firestar shortly thereafter in the 80s into her own four-issue miniseries. And so she was knocking around, young, you know, uh, uh, f- another young female character with firepower. So we had co-opted her. We were literally just taking what was existing. And in the same way that we believe, because Jim Valentino also responded to Tom Brevoort's blog covering all of this, kind of, you know, what have, what could have been fashion. He was covering all of this back then. And uh, Jim responded as well and said, look, the reason that we got this assortment of characters before the New Warriors happened was we are just doing what the New Warriors guys were going to do. And, and if you remember, the New Warriors were created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. It's not... Uh, the team on New Warriors number one. Tom DeFalco introduces in a in two issues. They're battling the Juggernaut in a guest appearance, their big debut in Thor. And Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco establish the New Warriors that you would then enjoy uh, uh, when they launched on their own. But they were introduced in Thor. So even before that happened, we're doing this, and we're just again we're just using you know what's out there. But you can you see some familiar names like Cougar and Brahma. Those names would go on to appear in my Youngblood book. Force, which we talk about as a space team that the Young Avengers are going to battle, ends up being in Guardians of the Galaxy. Jim uses utilizes them. but so, so our fourth issue, we had Nova, who we had both grown up loving. Love Nova. Nova when it was launched in 1977, 76. And uh, so many people my age, whether it's Eric Larson or myself or... You know, Jim Valentino wasn't my age, but he was definitely into comics and really enjoyed Richard Ryder and the Nova premise. And and so we thought he was right for the picking. So he would have been our guest star and our new characters would have been Brahma and Cougar. So we're trying to adhere to that, bring in the guest star in the fourth issue, bring in an existing, I keep using the word old, but an existing Marvel character to make them your guest star. And again, part of the formula. I've seen it in the Titans. I've seen it now when Jim points it out to me that it was crucial in Avengers 4. Jim would tell you that the reason it is such a popular practice to either create a brand new character that is prominent in issue 4, like Defenders issue 4, where Valkyrie makes her first appearance, you know, this uh, Nordic female warrior that is one of my favorite, you know, Marvel female heroines. She makes her appearance in Defenders number 4 prominently with her sword, on her horse, on her pegasus. And so that also functions as the issue four big guest star slash new star, new character first appearance. So so the Avengers did it, and Titans did it, and the Defenders did it, and so we were going to do it in Young Avengers 4 with Nova. Um, but as you know, Young Avengers by Rob Liefeld, Jim Valentino, didn't happen. I leaned all the way into making the New Mutants, you know, my my assignment and trying to turn that book around and 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 am very pleased with how that went. And Jim got the got the opening to do the Guardians of the Galaxy, which they had made clear they want they wanted to launch. So you'll see Force uh show up uh in, in a couple storylines early on, same issues like issue issue five of Jim's Guardians of the Galaxy. 
But here's the other kicker. What happens in Guardians of the Galaxy issue number four? Fire Lord. You got a cosmic team. They're, they're operating out in space, out in the edge of the cosmos, battling other space beings. Fire Lord was a fan favorite Herald of Galactus. Uh, he was the, I believe, if memory serves, the third uh, Herald of Galactus um, after Gabriel, the archangel uh, that turned out to be a, the hornblower who was uh, a, 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 a herald that, that the herald that Galactus took to replace Silver Surfer. But he had a mystery. He had a, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but it's cool. And I, th- I thought he was, he was a cool character. But Silver Surfer was the first. And then later on, he would introduce Fire Lord. And of course, Fire Lord would turn on him the same way all the heralds always turn on him. But Fire Lord was a big cosmic fan favorite character. And if you look at the cover to Guardians of the Galaxy 4, and of course the interiors, Fire Lord is flying above them and like guest starring Fire Lord. And, and, and again, his appeal is uh, so much more geared towards a cosmic book. But Jim is, Jim is following the formula, the formula. And this is a formula where issue fours have a guest star. And it is tried and it is true. And Jim's theory on this is that that fourth issue is where sales are going to start tapering off. And you want to reinforce why they should be buying this book, ordering this book, retailers. Um, It's really more for the retailers to go, oh, I can't, I can't diminish this. Whatever numbers I was going to cut between three and four because they've already gotten issues one and two in by the time they're going to order four. They, it, the, the guest star, the new character, the, 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 the relevant guest appearance is, is there to draw extra attention to keep your numbers high, to keep them from cutting bait, to keep them from giving you an extension of life, you know, a belief in your product. So Jim did it in, you know, puts Fire Lord, in the comic, but a lot of these Young Avengers characters, whether whether I took mine to the New Mutants or to Youngblood or Jim, put all of his characters into uh, into Guardians of the Galaxy, like this really cool character called Force. Which I remember Jim going, "Is there a team called Force? Because it's a great name." Well, let's get to X Force number four. What happens in my X Force number four? Spider Man's in X Force number four. So I am now in keeping with the formula of the special issue four that is established. Avengers, Captain America, Titans, Justice League. Okay, Defenders, Valkyrie. Guardians of the Galaxy, Fire Lord, and now X-Force, Spider-Man. Those are just, is that five? Is that five examples that I just gave you of the the issue four guest stars? So that's me dangling to you that there is indeed tried and true formulas that sometimes you're not aware of, but it's working for a reason. I, I, I don't have it in front of me. I think maybe it was later. Maybe it was a six or a seven, but I think Punisher War Journal, there's a reason Wolverine shows up again. Mid, mid Maybe it's not always issue four, but, but I did just give you five issue four examples of the brand new character that joins or the guest star that returns to the spotlight via you know, the storyline that, that is intended to tell the retailer and to tell the fan, look, don't, don't, don't be done with us yet. You know, you know, we're, 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 we're building bridges to other parts of this universe, like the Titans battling the Justice League. Did, would I have loved the Titans without that? I, I, I already did. I love the Titans with their preview book in DC Comics Presents and then their first issue and their second issue. 
But man, did I love it even more that the Justice League showed up and put them to the test. Other formulaic things that we were taught. I was told by Jim Shooter. I was told by Tom DeFalco again, and I've shared them on this show. 777, when comic books got to 21 pages a month. Your first seven pages, this is the recommended menu of how to produce comics that Shooter got from Stan, who gave it to Roy, who passed it along. And it really stands the test of time, especially Spider-Man comics, especially whether it was Gil Kane, John Romita Sr., um, Ross Andrew, whoever was doing it. First seven pages, you show your character using their powers. This is Shooter and, and DeFalco were adamant about this. The first seven pages, your character. So you as the reader, reader who is taking the book off the shelf, off the spinner rack and flipping through it, you go, oh, this is what my character does. Cap throws his shield. His shield can deflect bullets. Thor throws his hammer. He can call down thunder. Spider-Man can crawl in walls and shoot webs. Okay, action sequence. Put the character through their paces. Okay, dial it down. The character then goes and does some personal character stuff. Either visits girlfriend, visits Aunt May, checks in with J. Jonah Jameson for an, an assignment. Then, uh, you know, maybe a, a subplot, a page or two of a subplot of whatever the villain's up to. And then the last seven pages is the menace of that issue, making themselves known, presenting their threat. And then it presumably ends on a cliffhanger because you want to bring them back for the next issue. Which then, if you've ended on a cliffhanger, so if Spider-Man is about to battle the lizard at the end of this issue, well, the next issue is naturally the seven pages where Spider-Man is going to decide the battle with, between him and the lizard. Whether he's going to you know, whip his tail and knock a wall on Spider-Man and Spider-Man's going to shake it off. He's going to get to higher ground. He's going to use his webbing. He's going to trap lizard, take a picture of him, and then go deliver it to the bugle in the next issue. So it's just, it just endlessly goes this way and then, you know, in that issue, goes to the bugle, maybe uh, gets 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 a gets a gets a uh, you know tipped off that something's going down d- down near the docks, and oh my gosh, it's 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 the kingpin and his men doing something. Spider-Man's uncovered it. The kingpin and his men attack him. Oh my gosh, that they, they, they've 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 you know thrown Spider knocked him out and thrown him into the into the harbor, and we see him sinking on the last page. Well, then the next issue opens with Spider-Man getting out of that jam, getting back up from the water attacking the mafia and or escaping but what he's going to use his webs use his powers underwater to get back to the surface again it just it's a, it just keep, keeps feeding itself but 777 and i have lived by this forever this is to me that is a tried and true way to use powers show what your character can do move interpersonal storylines um and and character conflict and then get to the latest threat villain end on a cliffhanger repeat rinse start over that is a formula that is a formula for success just like this formula i just told you about of the issue force if you've never heard of it before and i just turned the lights on for you i'm so excited because when jim valentino shared it with me and turned the lights on for me i was like whoa no way oh my gosh blew my mind so that is uh the formula the secret it's a quickie uh, I don't know if we're going to call it 46, 47 minutes a quickie, but but I, I hope that that unlocks something in you that you can go back and check. Put this to the test. X-Force 4, Spider-Man. Guardians 4, uh, uh, Fire Lord. Um, young, uh, the, the Young Avengers, our proposal had Nova in it. Uh, Defenders 4 has Valkyrie. Titans 4 had the Justice League. Avengers 4 has Captain America being reintroduced and then joining the team. 
big, splashy guest appearances, always on the fourth issue to keep the reader hooked, to keep the retailer engaged so that they don't give up, that they continue to go the extra mile with your book, give it the extra juice, and and, and hopefully not drop those numbers. That is the formula. I've shared it here with you today. I took it out of the vault. Some of you are like, life, I knew that. Okay, great. But many of you, I know it because I know how you guys react and I'm so appreciative. Uh, and, and, and so I, I hope today, I hope it is today that you heard it for the first time in the 777. You know, we are here to, to, to pull the curtain back and show what the wizard is doing behind the curtain and all the buttons that are being pushed. And I, and I hope that that actually does something, enlightens you, excites you. For the next segment of today's show, launching straight into building on the subject that we had in the last uh, couple episodes about art and original art, I'm going to take you to the floor of San Diego Comic-Con in 1986. Uh, yeah, 1986. I have not quite broken into comics yet. I have my samples. Um, the artists that I have gotten to know over the course of a couple of years and a couple of conventions are prominent names, especially during that time, during the Bronze Era, and then especially into the 90s. It's John, it's uh, Jerry Ordway, Mike Zeck, and John Beatty. Mike Zeck and John Beatty were the art team on Captain America, Secret Wars, and the Punisher miniseries. They were like Burn and Austin. They, they came with dinner. They came with lunch. They just worked together, and they worked great together. Jerry Ordway had started out a fabulous inker and then had become this fabulous penciler, and at this point in his career was doing a little of both. He was penciling The New Adventures of Superman, which was the companion book to the John Byrne relaunch, which was Man of Steel and and John's entire new launch of Superman. And Jerry Ordway uh, did the Superman book uh, that, that, that had the existing Superman numbering. They just called it The Adventures of Superman in order for John Byrne to get his brand new Superman book. But uh, Jerry had inked George Perez on Crisis. He had inked John Byrne for a long tenure at Fantastic Four and then taken over the penciling chores at Fantastic Four before then being offered the Superman gig. Jerry was popular. He was well-liked. He was tall, good-looking guy in comics, Very always wore like a nice dress shirt and slacks, really not a T-shirt and jeans guy. Jerry was a really classy, classy guy. Mike Zeck was a Southern gentleman. Always kind of had a jacket on, some jeans. John Beatty was the tallest of everybody. Uh, had the rockabilly hair, kind of the the party attitude. These guys had allowed me to spend so much time with them. Uh, invited me to Marvel and DC parties after hours, and I hadn't even broken in yet. But they'd, they'd been shepherding me, giving me feedback, seeing my samples, and I was going to get hired the following spring. But that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon on the floor of the original the, the original San Diego Comic Convention convention Center that I used to attend, not the new one that would open in 1991. In the, in the back third of the room, which is where the publishers were, in between the tables where Marvel was and DC was, and they were facing each other. I'm hanging out, and I'm talking to Mike Zeck and John Beatty, and Jerry strolls up. Jerry knows me, and obviously Mike and John are their friends. It would turn out that Mike lives in Connecticut just a short distance from Jerry. I, I would find that out when I, in 19, in the fall of 1987, I would go to stay in Connecticut with Jerry Ordway and visit with Mike Zeck. And that's when I knew how close they were in proximity in, uh, in, in Connecticut. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Mike and I'm talking to John Beatty. I think John Beatty is giving me a hard time because they 
took me to the Marvel Comics party and I sat over on some chairs at a table and fell asleep because I was young. I was young and tired. I was driving my own car uh, at this point. My dad was no longer taking me. I was, uh, you know, uh, I graduated high school. So I was driving and, and staying at the show two to three days, maybe not all four days, but I was always up there for two to three days. John Beatty was kind of giving me a hard time. Again, he was the younger uh, 20-something guy. He had the big rockabilly hair. He was kind of more of a just just real gusto, gusto for life guy. John is so fun. Uh, and they had all taken turns um, honoring my request to just sketch in my sketchbook. And they always gave me way better sketches than I deserve. But Jerry walks up. He has a, the thing about Jerry that I always remember, he never carried a portfolio. He carried a briefcase, a briefcase that would fit 11 by 17 pages, but it was very studious. And he walks up, he goes, Hey, how you guys doing? And he goes, uh, Rob, I'm going to give you something. I need you to wear this. I'm like, what? Pop, pop, opens his briefcase, pulls out a hot pink. I mean, hot pink t-shirt, hot pink t-shirt. And, you know, grabs it from the top of the collar and shakes it down so I can see the whole shirt. And it is an awesome illustration of Jack Kirby's face. And that face is printed in purple ink against the entire hot pink shirt. I mean, collar to sleeve to the entire shirt is hot pink. And in purple, there's Jack Kirby's face in the center. And above it, it says, give Jack... And then below his face, his artwork back, exclamation point. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I'm going to tell you a sidebar on this. I have searched for years. I mean, I have football jerseys. I have my, I have my football jerseys, my football unis from when I was in high school. I have so much old stuff in boxes. I swear to you, I just don't remember throwing this shirt away, but it is, it is, um, it is possible that I just either outgrew the shirt or the shirt outgrew me. But I, for years, it was the, the, the top shirt in my drawer. Give Jack his artwork back. And he's like, wear that. Come on, man. We're trying to get the word out. We, we, we really need to get Jack Kirby's artwork back. I was like, I'll do it. I'm, I'm so excited. So let me frame this. Let me, let me, let me jump you back and, and give you some background on this. So Jack Kirby was among many artists who had not been given their artwork back for years. Now, again, some of the stories go that Marvel gave art to fans. Some stories go that, you know, Marvel gave an equal proportion of art to the writers as well as the artists. And so there was less art to go around, period. Some say, oh, we saw it being shredded. Well, then there's other stories, and I'm not sure I'm going to get into it today. If I do, it's because I made a snap judgment to pivot, but there are others who claim mass theft, just mass theft. And and Jim Shooter, I'm going to read to you because he's the editor-in-chief at this time. Jim, Jim survives until the middle of 1987. I mean, he is there like 11 years and is, I've, I've told you and, and have dedicated podcasts on why he was the absolute uh, best editor-in-chief Marvel ever had steered them into so many ridiculous uh, successes. He just had a great instinct. Great talent, and uh, but at this point in time, as the editor-in-chief, he is caught up in an executive battle with Jack Kirby about uh, the right to Jack's artwork back because it's now really come to the fore that because Jack has talked to the press and 
and said, you know, Marvel didn't return my artwork for years. So now the fans are hearing about this. Fans my age. And in some cases, guys like Jerry Ordway and Mike Zeck, they're hearing about all this for the first time in the last couple of years. Well, the way that Jim Shooter talks about it, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from Jim speaking openly about this so that you understand, uh, you know, where he's coming from in this regard. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I wasn't there, but I think if you listen to what Jim Shooter is saying at the time, uh, you'll, 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 you'll have a little light shed on this. He says, uh, this is Jim Shooter writing himself. So this is Jim's voice. Before the mid seventies, no one had their artwork returned. Actually, few even cared about it. As the collector market grew stronger, artwork became much more valuable and the artists started caring about it. By the time I became the editor-in-chief in Marvel at 19, in 1978 and was therefore in a position to have a voice in Marvel management, both Marvel and DC had instituted art return policies. Marvel, Marvel's art return policy set up by Roy Thomas gave writers a share of the pages. Go figure. As soon as I took power, I changed that. One reason why a few writers like Mensch and Thomas didn't like me much. Tough. I did what I believed was the right thing. Jack Kirby worked for Marvel during this, this period, and he had his current artwork returned to him, just like everyone else. The dispute arose over old art, and by old art, this is Rob now speaking out of this, we're talking Fantastic Four, Thor, X-Men, Avengers, all the stuff that Jack did prior, in the 60s, prior to him leaving and going to D.C. for almost, you know, six years. So, back to Jim. The dispute arose over the old art from before the return plan was instituted, which was all in a warehouse. Okay, I am going to do this. I, I, I was debating it. Okay, so fascinating, just absolutely like mind-blowing is that these lists uh, saw the light of day and they've been compiled and you can see them and they are absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating. And uh, in in this group that I'm in, uh, uh, a gentleman has sh uh, shared the coalition, the collating of all this art that was done. Marvel put forth to have all of the art that was in their warehouses that they hadn't been giving back in the in the '60s. They set about to catalog all this, and uh, this gentleman has shared this. Uh, and uh, it, it, it is absolutely fascinating to see. I mean, it is an endless supply, an endless list of, uh, of, of, you know, the team that was dispatched to go in and, uh, and, 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 and count all, you know, all, all of this stuff. And, 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 and so they had a really good uh, accounting in regards to to what was what was left to divvy up, and 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 as Shooter has said, uh, I mean this stuff was really starting to take off and become extremely uh, you know covetous in in the collector's market, and uh, I mean just all manner of different articles and different different uh, opinions and and, and 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 you know 
who deserved what, where, when, and high. And, and we've got a prominent retailer who has told me to my face before how often he would um, he would venture that, that, that there were giant, and, and trust me, I, I'm not going to really get into specific names, but, but boy, that, that, that there are crazy accusations that have been going on for years about who had what, who knew where, 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 what pages were, who was selling under the table. I mean, it really, um, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, what's the word? It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a little skeezy. Um, when you, uh, when, when you start reading, some of what I will call the, the, the theories as to where so much of this art went. But, um, you know, th- this list is, uh, I mean, r- really it, it, it's, uh, it's overwhelming, but I mean, it lists like 20 pages from this Avengers book and 20 page, 20 pages, you know, from, from this, uh, you know, t- 20 pages from, from this, uh, you know, from, from, from this fantastic four book. And, uh, and I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's extensive. Well, one day half of that stuff is missing. Suddenly there is a, uh, there's a bunch of art that went missing. And this is while like shortly after, you know, they, uh, shortly after they had kind of collated all this. And the way that uh, that Jim tells it, so so I, I'm not going to get into all the specifics of this list. I just looked over it. I mean, it is it is, let's just say, thousands of pages, tons of Jack Kirby art from Fantastic Four, from Thor, all the stuff that had not been returned to him. Jim says, "I was on the side of Kirby and all the other old artists. I tried at every opportunity to convince Marvel's brass." their executives, to return the old art. There were many reasons cited by the corporate council, financial officers, why this was a problem. The art should not considered be considered an asset and could not be disposed of with no benefit to the stockholders of a publicly traded company. Tax issues, a, Jim says, a ton of other nonsense. Over time, I successfully overcame all of those objections and I got approval from the board to return the old artwork. Jack Kirby's contract had just expired at this time, and he left Marvel. And as soon as he left, he sued Marvel for ownership of the characters that he'd created. The return of the artwork was one aspect of Jack's case. So then, because Jack Kirby was suing Marvel, again, I'm reading from Jim Shooter's memoirs, the lawyers felt the artwork could not be returned. It's complicated, but doing so would tend to support his claims. In fact, they wouldn't let me return artwork to anyone while this case was pending. Imagine the frustrations of the Joe Sinnets and the John Buscemas. The legal sparring went on a long time, starting as most lawsuits do with a period of threats and legal maneuvering. In 1978, the Kirby side began an aggressive legal and PR attack on Marvel that ended or lessened somewhat in mid-1986 when the matter was finally settled. Though it was a complex case about who owned the characters, the way it was pitched to the public by their side was that Marvel, and in particular I, him being Jim Shooter, would not give Jack his artwork back. Um, He talks about running into Jack at conventions during this time. Jack was gracious. Jack Jack was kind. He got together with Jack several times to try to sort this out. And he sat with Jack once and talked over all of the ways that he, you know, felt that he was wronged by Marvel. 
So he attended, uh, because he was such a fan of Jack, a panel of Jacks and a bunch of people while he was sat in the back room because he wanted to hear Jack talk. And I'm like, Jack had mentioned that he felt wrong by Marvel during this time. And, and a guy in the crowd said, why aren't you up there, you know, siding with, with Jack? And he says, I was in a difficult position as Marvel's representative at the show. I couldn't well get out in front of a crowd and say, hey, everybody, those guys upstairs at Marvel. Again, I'm reading straight from Jim. Hey, everybody, those guys upstairs at Marvel, they really are assholes. Um, I keep trying to tell them to do the right thing, but they won't. As long as I was cashing their paychecks, my morals say I cannot do that. Behind, that doesn't mean I can't find like a maniac, fight like a maniac for Jack Kirby behind closed doors, which I did, making a great number of enemies in the corporation in the process. Eventually, I was able to convince the lawyers that it would not compromise the case if all the other artists were all the other artists were able to get their art back. So I was allowed to return everyone else's art but Jack's. The Kirby case ended when Marvel, in Discovery, produced a number of documents, including several signed with Cadence Industries' predecessor, proving Kirby had specifically agreed more than once in exchange for compensation beyond the original payment for the work that Marvel did, in fact, own the the work, the art, the characters, the ideas, everything. One specifically listed every story Jack Kirby ever did, part of the proof Martin Goodman was requiring to provide that he owned, that what he owned is what he was selling, uh, that he, what he sold to, uh, to Cadence Enterprises. Kirby's lawyers were apparently unaware of the, ex- of the existence of these documents. They apologized, and the suit was dropped. Marvel's lawyers would have shown them earlier, but never dreamed that the other side was not ex- aware that these documents exist. The only remaining thing at that point was returning the artwork. Kirby then demanded as a condition of accepting the art that he must be given sole credit as creator on the characters that he co-created with Stan. And Stan must specifically receive no credit. Uh, he framed his demands for the return of the artwork in such a way that it would do so to be a tactic of mission by Marvel, that it was his art that it was the, his underlying rights and therefore his characters. About a dozen times I requested an audience with the upper management and or lawyers to argue in favor of generosity towards King Kirby. One thing I proposed was offering a settlement which would include Kirby and all the other founding fathers in the character creator incentive that I had established for current Marvel creators, which Jim did. That is a fact. Jim created the royalty system that really made comics a worthwhile endeavor and gave us the royalties that we got going forward. This incentive was a profit-sharing plan that paid a royalty for all uses of the character. It worked like partial ownership. I asked for it to be retroactive to the date that the plan had been installed. Retroactive payments of any kind uh, beyond the date that had been previously adamantly ruled out by management. As it turned out, my more modest, modest plan was squashed. It was ruled out too. So Jack, with his lawyer's help, sent us a letter refusing to accept the art back unless he was given credit. So bottom line, jumping down a few paragraphs, Jim, uh, Jim Shooter met with Jack. He said, does, not, does Stan deserve some credit? And Jack told Jim, well, sure, yeah, he does. And so you're gonna, you'll be okay if we put Stan and Jack. And he said, that, that's fine. And so bottom line, uh, this compromise opened the door for Jack to get his art back. Uh, but it was not uh, complete. And there is a uh, 
segment of the story where while they were collating in the warehouse, a bunch of it, uh, G- some of it got stolen. And so Jim then demanded that it be moved from the warehouse to Marvel. And during that move, even more of it went missing. Um, he goes on to say that he, as as an executive officer at Marvel, he was never able to come out and completely take Jack's side against Marvel because that would be undermining the company that was paying his bills. Um, he said, but to the fans, I was in a position where unless I was willing to get out there and badmouth our founding fathers or badmouth the people who were providing our checks, what could I do? I wasn't willing to ever talk bad about Jack, and I felt honor-bound to represent Marvel as best I could, even though I disagreed with their stance. Not with the legality of their stance, but with the intelligence of it. It was just an idiotic position from the start. I kept hoping that someone could work something out. From my point of view, no one on this planet fought harder for Jack Kirby and his interest than me. And while I am the most vilified human being in the world when it comes to the subject of Jack Kirby during this time, it wearies me. It really does. Probably no one will ever believe me at this point. So be it. I'm not interested in proving my case. I'm not interested in getting into the debate over it. I've said my piece. They can take it or they can leave it. During those years, my relationship with the Marvel bosses had gone downhill. They were trying to sell Marvel, which they did in the late 80s. Um, That's me saying they actually did. He says, they were trying to sell Marvel, and I found some of their dealings injurious to the creators and damaging to the creators and the company's future, but I fought them every step of the way. I'm not good at political infighting. My fighting with top Marvel management went on behind closed doors. And because I was increasingly at war with the board, they were only too happy to let the blame for the entire Kirby mess stick to me. Uh, They did a great job undercutting me, though, and by the time I left, everything but the Challenger disaster, the space shuttle, had been my fault. Uh, He says, uh, he says, you know, whatever. That was his... Whatever. Um, it's an interesting story in regards to the fight behind uh, behind the scenes to uh, to get them, uh, you know, to get them their art, and uh, and and the fact that so much of it went missing in the transition because part of the uh, the blowback is that there is so much of this art that did not make it to Jack. By the time Jack received his art, it was, I mean, it was a diminished amount. Jack himself was very, uh, felt very ripped off, felt short-shifted. And to this day, there, like I said, I won't get into the specifics, but if you follow some of these guys who've been around since the 60s, you know, there's a guy right now who is saying uh, that he would go into a hotel room at a specific room and that Marvel representatives, this is in 1969, had names you would know, names you would know immediately if I said them, had covers, interiors, entire books. This gentleman claims to have bought entire Neil Adams X-Men from these Marvel names that you would mention during that time, who really should have no right in having access to this artwork. And when pressed on it, said, well, this is part of the overage, the inventory that Marvel's carrying, and if we can, you know, sell it and uh, and get and get the, the money to Marvel, that makes Marvel happy. Now, this is before Jim Shooter's, you know, time. And, and, and again, this is, 
it's, it's really interesting to listen to the stories. And again, I'm not naming names for reasons, but these people are documenting them pretty openly now. And it's all becoming, it's all coming to light because of the $3. million sale of the Spider-Man Secret Wars page. Because that has just really thrown everybody and the value and, 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 uh, a site called ICV2, uh, an, a writer named Rob uh, Salkowitz uh, wrote about where he sees the future of this stuff going. And he talks about how, and I've talked to my wife about this because this is the kind of stuff we talk about because having known, I know the guy who has the first appearance of Cable, that page. Uh, I, 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 I am, in fact, the guy who ended up selling it to him. Uh, it, it actually traded hands a, a number of times. And I was basically able to trade hand. Tra- I, I presided over the movement of that page a couple times. But I know who has the, uh, obviously, some of the first appearance covers of Cable and Deadpool. I do not know who has the first appearance of uh, Deadpool in their collection, the, the interior page where he's standing over Cable, the first uh, interior page appearance of Domino or Shatterstar or Feral or some of these other characters. But the bottom line is, Rob uh, Salkowitz, who wrote this at ICV2, uh, says, um, you know, that there's so much emphasis on first appearances. And the reason I just took you down that road is while all of this battle for Jack's art happened and the community did rise up, I wore my shirt proudly. I had it for years. Give Jack his artwork back. It was a public way to shame Marvel and the top brass. And it wasn't a good look. It wasn't a good look back then. Can you imagine if the internet, if Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and all of these other outlets, Facebook had existed, it would have been resolved much quicker, I believe. The guys at at Disney, Robert Iger, now that he's gone, I can tell that he didn't have the stomach for this kind of stuff. He thought that was bad. Uh, You saw what happened with Scarlett Johansson this last summer. The lawsuit about Black Widow was settled in record time because they don't need that. They don't need that kind of stuff dragging them down. Jack was given uh, posthumous uh, recognition for being an, uh, an epic Disney creator in the summer of 2017. He and Stan received kind of like-minded uh, uh, creator awards. Jack's uh, trophies went to his his monuments that they built for him went to his family family and, and 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 Stan was alive to receive it at that time and that was all in, at D23 in Anaheim at the Disney uh, convention that the, the, their their you know conventions that they control and that they run to promote their movies their parks their 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 now they're streaming and it was a big deal and Rob Bob Iger uh, said some great honorable things about Jack and he was given his due and and Marvel uh, what was was Disney was sued uh, by, by Jack's uh, estate for quite some time and they ended up settling it. But this stuff upsets people. I was at a Jack Kirby tribute panel in 2017. I was asked to be part of a remembrance of Jack given that I was really the only one in my peer group to spend significant time with him, do work with him. And the other guys on the panel were in their late 60s, 70s and they just, when I said they went off, the tables were shaking and voices were raising, raising and, and, and the, and the tables were getting pounded. And these, these old guys could get upset and, and get raucous. And the moderator kept saying, Hey, we talked about this. There was going to be none of this. You got to stop this. Excuse me, everyone. We got, we got to stop the panel until we calm this down. And I was like, wow, the Jack versus Marvel stuff is still really raw for a lot of guys who, who, um, I, I just fear Marvel will never do right enough by them. And certainly had Jack not passed as a young age, I think, 
so much more would have been done, you know, in his name because he was such a lovable, compelling, charismatic man. Jack Kirby was just, he was just the very best. He was the very best spokesman we as artist creators could have had. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, being at Jack's funeral and, and, and I mean, we were all just weeping and, and because we just felt the loss of this, this magical man. I mean, honestly, I will, he is a magical man, was a magical man, is a magical figure. Uh, I, I think up there with the Walt Disney's of the world, um, the Tolkien's, all of it. And, uh, but this artwork thing, give Jack his artwork back. It really did work. It shamed him. Like Jim says in this memoir, he, he says it, it all came to a head in 1986. 1986 is when, you know, Jerry Ordway handed me that shirt to put this on. There were full page ads in all the comic book press. And again, when they finally gave him, there were, you know, later issues of Fantastic Four, later, later issues of Thor, maybe just a few issues of each. Nowadays, those Full issues would be worth millions, as we've established with, with what's going on in the auction house. But but the stories about where this art is in this article on ICB2 that I keep mentioning mentions that first appearances, and this is what I talked to Joy about, first appearance of Black Panther, first appearance of Silver Surfer, first appearance of the Inhumans, you don't see those pages. They're not out there. Where are they? Were they shredded? Are they still deep in someone's collection? This article surmises that because of the wealth now associated with these pages, that these people may actually take a risk, come out to light, put these pages up, come up with stories, how they traded hands. Well, this person can say, well, I was given this as a gift from this guy who was given it as a gift from this guy. You know, it's going to be tricky, but it's the idea that these could still be out there. But if they're not, then it really does become the first appearances of the black costume and Deadpool and Cable and, you know, and Carnage and all the important 90s figures, the stuff that as it makes its way um, just that the screen gets people excited. Uh, Miles Morales is certainly exciting people as well. I mean, I would be remiss and I don't want to be remiss. So that's why I'm, I'm punching that in. But anyway, so today formula, the formula, the issue four is the seven, seven, seven. And then the reason I walked you down that Jim shooter blog, he as an editor in chief, as a creative who championed people. And he did. And, 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 and I can read to you comments that Frank Miller talked about how much Jim advanced him challenging him to become a better storyteller. Jim Shooter is a great editor-in-chief. I, I I know him. I really admire him. I know that without Jim on Jack's side, that Jack thing never, never resolves. I mean, I tell people all the time, flip it, reverse it, put it in reverse. You know, what if Jim was the evil corporate monster that everyone had, you know, made him out to be because he was the face of Marvel Comics? Well, I don't think Jack ever gets his art back. I think because he was railing against the executives, who, and you can tell how they think. Oh no, no, no taxes and and what would this represent? And these, this, this isn't just artists. It's it's got great value. Imagine today's market, if they weren't giving art back. I'll do some more art return nightmares. I had one myself. I don't think I've shared it before, but I will in the, in in an upcoming episode. As we again, the art is on everybody's mind because now it's like, what's happened to comic book art? And and. Uh, you know, the values are insane and seven figures are now being thrown around in conjunction with all of this artwork and Heritage will tell you they are being deluged. You are going to see in the next few, you know, catalogs, the end result of what a 3.3 million Spider-Man 
black costume interior page of Secret Wars yields. And it's going to be exciting. And we're going to be there and we're going to watch it. And I guarantee you, we are going to talk about it on this show. Because uh, that's what we do, right? And and so so between the formula and the history lesson and the art returns and uh, where are all those missing pages, why were so many issues of Fantastic Four and Thor and Avengers and Jack's work from the 60s missing and Steve Ditko's Spider-Man, you know, this all started with really... A guy saying that a page that Steve Ditko did in Heritage last week was a stolen page. But that's a story for another day, and another day will be here soon enough. As we wrap up each and every episode, I read the reviews that you guys leave for us uh, on on the podcast platforms. Uh, So many of you guys leave them on Apple, um, Spotify. every, Every platform has an opportunity for you guys to share uh, a review. Um, I, I love reading them. I'll, I'll continue to read them uh, at the end of each and every show. And today you're going to dig it because it doesn't get kind of more uh, succinct and to the point than this review. And again, we need your five stars. We need your word of mouth. Uh, the reviews that you put on the platform just help us so much um, position the show and and, and uh, increase its profile. So I thank you in advance always for the, uh, the reviews that you guys give. This one is a fantastic one. It's called Love It. Title of it is Love It. It's got five stars. It's from uh, Drew Bialy. Okay, B-I-A-L-Y, Drew Bialy. And he is, is very quick and to the point. Love it, five stars. Here it is. Here's his review. Get ready. This podcast is worth it. For Liefeld's Todd McFresh Todd McFarlane impression alone. Okay, I buffed that. This podcast is worth it for Liefeld's Todd McFarlane impression alone. Well, that's it. That's the review. And I I thoroughly enjoy. Thank you, Drew, for sharing that. You guys, I read them at the end of every show. Please make sure you um leave them, sign them, put your name on them, your handle, whatever. I'll be happy to share them. Thank you guys so much for all the support that you give this show. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Leifeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Got a blue check just to know that it's me. I love talking to you guys, exchanging ideas, um, just sharing opinions. I, I really enjoy uh, our, our back and forth on Twitter. Thank you so much for talking to me, uh, talking to me there on Instagram. I am at Rob Leifeld. Got that, got early, got there first. Unlike Twitter where I was beaten for Rob Leifeld by a, a wonderful squatter, I am at R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D on Instagram. Same thing, DMs mess, uh, uh, DMs and, and comments. And, and I just love reading what you guys are thinking and, and your feedback. And, and, and thank you for all your support. Continue to spread the word. Uh, I am all over Facebook. This page has a Facebook page, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Search for it, uh, join it, like it. Uh, comment on it. It's 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 on our Facebook pages. We continue to build awareness for the show. I'm all over. I'm in Land of the Lost groups, Planet of the Apes groups, Logan's Logan's Run groups, Bronze Age groups, Silver Age groups, all manner of different artists. I love it. Facebook is as uh, the clubs and the pages is what saved Facebook for me. But anyway, I just appreciate all of um all of you uh, tuning in and listening. Uh, ho- hopefully there was uh, some fresh new meat on the bone today for you to um to digest and consume and we are going to definitely make this pledge to each other right now that we're going to take care of each other you're going to take care of yourselves you're going to take care of your you're going to um you're going to stay safe and uh you know slow it down if you got to just just chill there's always room to chill and uh and and maybe listen to another episode in order to do it but you're going to stay safe and uh you're going to take care of yourself and we are most definitely going to talk again real soon Thank <laughs> you.